Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Amen. Good morning, church. And are you thankful for what God has done for you, for me? Yeah. Man, what a great morning. So thankful that you're all here this morning, that you found a seat. It is so good to see the room full this morning. And for all our first-time guests, welcome to Salem Heights Church. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are glad that you're here. And hopefully someone around you has welcomed you and you feel at home here at our church. And all those of you joining us online, we're glad that you are watching from home as well. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to grab it now and find your way to the New Testament letter of Romans. We're going to be looking at two different passages this morning briefly in our time together as we wrap up our kickoff series called From a Clinch fist to a bowed head. And we're going to start here at the end of Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. This has been an exciting season, but I was reminded just a few days ago of that moment when the world kind of stopped. And although we felt a little bit out of sorts because we weren't able to do everything that we had been doing and we didn't know when life was going to resume back to normal, there was something beautiful about having a mandatory break. And I remember how so many of us were going to say, when, when things come back, when things come back to normal, we're not going to fill our lives as full as they once were. How are you doing in that area? <laughs> Kickoff is exciting. Anytime there's a fresh start, there's new opportunities, there's fresh hope. And now we are in the kickoff of a a new ministry year. We're kicking off ministries this week. All the midweek groups are, are finally here. And we know that school has begun and there's new sports seasons that have begun. There's all kinds of new opportunities and those are exciting. And even here at Salem Heights, we've invited you to get connected to other people, to join in to this body of local believers and we've been talking since May. Uh, every, every couple of months, we've been highlighting this fact that the Lord is moving us into a new season here as a church. And he is moving us and giving us a vision to build something. But we've encouraged our church to be something before we build something. That we wanted God to work in our hearts. That we wanted this to be a unified vision. And we believe God is calling our church to to build, to increase what he's called us to do, not to make our name great, but to continue to fulfill what he's called us to do. And so we're about to endeavor into a building project here in a few weeks. And we've been asking our church family to prayerfully consider, number one, is this of the Lord? And number two, if it is, how will you participate? But with so many opportunities coming at us, it is likely for many of us that this excitement will soon turn to exhaustion. Because every opportunity requires a level of sacrifice, both from an individual and from us as a church. And when that happens, opportunities can begin to feel like obligations. Has that ever happened to you? So so many exciting things that we can be a part of, and then we start to participate, we start to say yes, we start to try to be obedient and respond in obedience, and yet those opportunities begin to feel like an obligation. And when we begin to sense that rub inside ourselves, that leads us to have a clenched fist. 
when all these opportunities begin to start to take withdrawals from us and we begin to be asked personally, will you participate? Will you get involved? Will you sacrifice? Will you let somebody else glean and grow and, and sit under you? Would you give up your time? Would you give up your resources? When we start to hear those things, as exciting as they might be, it begins, it naturally, our, our inner man, that, that old self begins to rub against those opportunities and we begin to close our fists and cynicism might be able to start to creep in. It's like, what's, what's the real motives behind all of this? Or possibly if it's not cynicism, it's skepticism that can we really trust what's being presented to us? Or is this just greed and, and ask? And possibly when, when we begin to feel that rub inside of us, when we're being invited into opportunities and we, yet we feel like it's asking from us to sacrifice it could be a clenched fist of selfishness. I don't really want to give that away. But here's the reality. A clenched fist can cause us to miss out on an opportunity given by God, by God to you for your good and ultimately for his glory. That these invitations are not meant to be obligations. They're opportunities to join in what God's already doing. And so, yes, there is a, an expectation to pray and to discern and be careful because it, it could be easy for us to be duped by anything, by anyone, by any idea. But if it's truly of the Lord, if it's truly spirit produced, then opportunities are never intended to be an obligation, but an invitation to join God in what he is doing. And so this morning, I want to look at a practical principle that I think can help shape our mindset when it comes to participation. And then I want us to consider a beautiful example from the Gospel of Mark that will highlight a simple truth that I want us to keep close in this new season. You with me? All right. So we're going to begin our time this morning by looking to something we can trust, and that is God's Word. Romans chapter 11 Verses 33 through 36. If you're able, would you stand with me just as a representation of an honor to God's word? And we will read this together. If you're ready to receive God's word this morning, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you agree with that statement? You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, in this season of excitement and launch and kickoff, I pray now that you would quiet our hearts and minds to focus on your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word this morning. And that in light of all these opportunities and all these things that we're being invited into and asked to participate in, God, would you settle our hearts to be able to know what's from you, for you, and for your glory. And would you lead us to participate? God, we want it to be from you and not from man. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. I think all of us could probably identify that our culture right now has a, a scarcity mindset. This is not new to culture, though. 
Scarcity mindset, this, this idea was first coined late 70s, early 80s. It's been around for a while, but this idea has been around since the Garden of Eden. A scarcity mindset is when you become pre- preoccupied with what you lack, or you have a fear of not having enough. And although I think it's easy for us to see this in our culture today, this this scarcity mindset that if I give of myself, if I sacrifice and if I participate and I join in on something that might be for someone else, what about me? What about my needs? What about my future? I think it's easy for us to see that in our culture today. This is not a new issue. We first see this in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. In the very first chapter, we first see a comparison and a contrast where God in his generosity as he created humankind says to man and woman that he placed in the garden, he says, everything that I've created here, I've given to you. I want you to rule over. I want you to enjoy it. All these plants, all these animals, this is for you. God is a God of abundance. God is a God of goodness. God is a God of provision to his people. Do you believe that? And then just a few chapters later in chapter three, the serpent comes, the enemy comes, and begins to question God's goodness. Did God say you can't? He introduces this idea of can't, withholding something from us. When God, the one who actually created it, communicated to his people, this is for you. I want you to enjoy it and you enjoying it and you stewarding it as I've intended actually glorifies me. And then the enemy comes in and says, can you believe that God's holding out on you? And immediately we begin to worry about what we don't have or is there really something better than what God has to offer? Can God really meet all my needs? Is he really good? And so we start to see this work its way out, this scarcity mindset, this fear, and this desire to try to control our circumstances so that we can have security in ourselves rather than placing all of our faith and all of our trust in a good God who's already promised to take care of us. Jesus speaks to this dynamic in Luke. He's talking to his followers and he says, consider the birds and consider the flowers, how, how beautifully adorned they are and how provided they are by God. And he says a simple question, aren't you more important than flowers and birds to God? It's an obvious question. The answer is yes. He says, so then just seek God. He knows what you need and he has promised to provide for your needs. Don't worry. One author put it like this. Jesus had a conception of the universe that it was beautiful A beautiful creation packed with an overabundance of resources and opportunities and potential. And that is a generous gift that the creator has given to us. Jesus believes that we are all being hosted by a generous creator. And if we can just tune into that creator's love and overwhelming generosity, it will change how you live and experience all of life. And so we have this scarcity mindset on one side and then we have some others who might say that everything is from God and he wants you to have everything you want and dream. So if you just do this, then God will give you everything you ask. And so how do we as faithful followers of Christ, faithful readers of God's word, begin to navigate a world that's either super afraid or has a wrong idea of provision? I think Romans eleven thirty six provides a practical principle. Here, Paul shares a hymn of praise that pushes against a scarcity mindset. It's a passage that in my own life is just, 
I feel like I keep sharing it with people and I keep sharing it in different contexts because I believe it is such a guiding principle for those who want to truly follow Christ and truly place their full trust and dependence on him. Look what it says here again in Romans 11 verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All things are from him. Everything you have is from God. Everything you're able to do with what he has provided is provided through a power that is through him. And it's all been given to us to be given back to him for his glory. Everything that God has given us, whether it's small or great, is from him. He has a vision. They're his resources. It all belongs to him. And oftentimes, God gives us a vision for something before he gives us the resources. Why does he do that? Well, if it's just our resources, then we can kind of spend them however we think is going to be spent best. But oftentimes, if it comes from him, it's usually much grander than we could ever ask or think. And then we go, how is this even possible? And he says, well, do you trust me? I'm going to provide everything you need to fulfill what I'm calling you to. And I'm even going to give you the wisdom on how to apply it so that it actually brings to pass what I've intended it to bring to pass if you will do it unto me. Everything is from him. Everything is through him. He empowers us to use his resources as he has designed and intend them to be used. We are not left on our own. And that's why with every invitation, every opportunity to join in what God's doing, we should ask him, God, what are you calling me to? Because I know that you are a great God doing many more things in your creation that you are asking me personally to participate in. It's what is it specifically that you're asking me to join in? What is it specifically that you've gifted me in naturally, my abilities? What you spiritually gifted me in as I place my faith in Christ? What have you physically gifted me with to give back into you and to help accomplish your purposes? He says, I will give you all that information if you will live through me, if you will abide in me, if you will remain in me and not try to do this for me, apart from me. And everything is to him for his glory. If someone were to ask you a question, what is your guiding principle? What is it in your life that you live by in order to make decisions? Not just what you believe for salvation, but what then do you do to make sure that you are following and walking in obedience to what God has for your life? I believe Romans eleven thirty six 36 is a great guiding principle. I live in light of the fact that everything I am and everything I have is from God, through God, and to God for his glory. That's an identity that gives you direction in a world of chaos. And that principle, that practical principle we see here in Romans eleven thirty six, 36 shapes our worship. Do you know that word that we use worship is, is a contraction of a word that meant worth-ship? What is the most worthwhile thing? The thing that has the most value in your life? I want to acknowledge that. I want to put that on display. So when I'm worshiping, I'm acknowledging the most valuable thing in my existence. Your worship will be impacted by this principle. If you live your life as seeing yourself having everything from God, through God, and to God for his glory, it's gonna impact what you're willing to give to him because you're going to see it very differently than if you're like, God's given me this, but now it's up to me to, to put it to use. 
or I've earned this and now God hasn't asked. God's, God needs something from me and so I'll determine how much God can be trusted with from my resources. How foolish is that? He even speaks to that right here in verse 35. Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Who's ever said, here you go, God, I'll loan you something because you don't have the resources to take care of this yourself. As if God has a big IOU list in heaven for you and for me. It's ludicrous to even consider. And yet sometimes we live like that when God calls us to get involved and joins us, join him where he's at. He invites us into something. And we're like, I don't know if I can really give up my time and my resources to what God wants to do because I've worked hard for this. He's like, what? If everything is from him and through him and to him, we're going to have a different way of worship. We're going to have a different way of sacrifice. We're going to have a different way of participation. What would it look like to have this truth shape our thinking and our actions? Well, there's a beautiful example that comes from the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. Would you turn over there with me? This event in human history actually happened. And it was so significant that Jesus actually predicted that as Wherever the gospel goes out in the world, this story is also going to be told. It's recorded for us in three out of the four narratives about Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. But let's look at what Mark writes for us here in chapter 14, starting in verse 3. It says, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it out on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What would it look like to have a life shaped by the principle that everything we have is from God, through God, and to God? I believe this is a beautiful picture of what that would look like. The first thing that we notice is that what she gave was personal. She was internally compelled, not externally coerced. This is our desire for our church family. As we launch into a new ministry year and we invite you, we we present to you opportunities for you to get connected and, and live life as part of a local church, God's church. And as we invite you to consider as part of our church family, if this is your home church, to participate joining us in this project that's going to allow us to expand the ministry that God has called our church to be, we do not want for one moment for you to feel Externally coerced, arm twisted. We have been committed this entire time to talk very little about this project, but to keep you informed and let the spirit of God unify our church. We want everything that's gonna be done and everything that's gonna be committed and everyone that's gonna participate to do it because they are compelled internally by a love for God and an idea that everything is from him, 
through him and to him so that he gets all the glory. It's not because, hey, we've created a plan and this is, man, we got some really smart people at Salem Heights and some really creative people and some really connected people and we were able to pull this off for God. How great is Salem Heights? We don't want anybody to say that. We want them to say, can you believe that bunch of monkeys was able to accomplish that task? (laughs) To God be the glory. That's what we want. I do not know which part of that you're clapping about. (laughs) What you're affirming there. I can tell you on behalf of our pastors, our leaders, our staff, this is our number one desire. We do not want for one moment as we invite you into both church life and a, and a vision project, a building that you would think for a second that, man, there's something going on here that doesn't seem right. No, we want to be like, we can't help but get involved because this obviously is of the Lord. But we want that to come from inside you because of your relationship with God, not because of what we are trying to get you to believe. That is our heart's desire. And what we see here in this story is that she made the decision. It was personal to her. She was compelled by God's love. Many people, other, uh, the other accounts of this story indicate to us, reveal to us that this woman here is the sister of Lazarus who God raised from the dead. It's Mary. We, we know about Mary and her sister Martha from other stories in the gospel, but Mary was the one who's who's sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's upset. Like, why isn't she doing more work for me? Why isn't she helping? And Jesus tells Martha, Mary's right where she needs to be at my feet listening. And here's Mary again. She's in this room. Jesus is at this dinner. He's just, and it doesn't say, and because Jesus made a plea or Jesus presented a, a QR code, she decided to give this alabaster jar of ointment. No, she just compelled. And she was compelled not to just give scarcely, she gave abundantly. It says here that these disciples were agitated because she took something that was worth about a year's worth of wages and she wasted it, quote unquote, on Jesus. But love, true love, the love of God compels us to give lavishly, abundantly. Second Corinthians 5 says, for Christ's love compels us since that we have reached this conclusion that if one died, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This is called internally compelled, not externally coerced. And that is what we see going on here. But what we also see was not only did what she give, was it personal, it was intentional. She took the initiative to respond to a spirit-produced opportunity. There was something going on in that moment and she responded in faith. She She took the initiative. She saw that opportunity to She's, she's listening. It doesn't seem like some of the other people are listening, but what Jesus says is she's doing something for me in advance. Jesus has been saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to give my life. I'm going away. And it didn't seem like any of his other followers are hearing it, but is it possible that she's starting to pick up on something and she does something that typically happens after a person dies and she's doing it ahead of time? She didn't put off that opportunity to respond till tomorrow. She didn't put it on somebody else to fulfill that call. She took the initiative and she was intentional. She said, I have this opportunity to give and so I'm gonna give. I'm not gonna give scarcely, I'm gonna give lavishly because God's love compels me to. 
And what Jesus says is what she's done is a noble thing. Verse six, that word noble in the Greek means good or proper or appropriate. She gives this, this ointment, she anoints Jesus with this ointment that's worth a year's worth of wages. And Jesus says, this was an appropriate thing for me. But what I want us to understand was that he was not impressed by the sum. He was impressed by the sacrifice. Sometimes when we are all asked to give and, and, and we're asked to participate, we might think that we have to, it's a, it's a kind of a comparison game. We have to all give a certain amount in order to be accepted by God or approved by God or appreciated by God. But what Jesus tells us in many other parts of the gospels is that he's not consumed by how much you give, but by the heart in which you give that sacrifice. To those who have little and they give out of that little, God is just as blessed to those who have a lot and give a lot. And so Jesus helps us understand that the gift that is given reveals the depth of love one has for him. Last week, Pastor Justin highlighted the story of the two brothers and the father, one who had gone off and squandered his inheritance. And then the older brother, who's just as troubled as the younger brother, even though he had stayed faithful to dad, he doesn't want to go and celebrate. Why? Because he had that clenched fist. Do you notice the clenched fist in this story? his disciples, his followers. Why would you spend this? Why has this perfume been wasted? Like the older brother, these, these people who were with Jesus, who thought they were called to be helpers of Jesus, thought they actually knew better how to help Jesus, how to, how to do ministry better than Jesus. We live right now, you and I, in a culture of opinions. Everyone has a platform, whether we like it or not, to tell us their opinions about everything that's going on in the world today. And because of that culture of opinions, we believe that it's our right, it's our duty to have an opinion on everything we see being done in someone's life. And it doesn't just stop with secular things. It absolutely applies to how we judge each other's spiritual lives. And the only one that can judge the heart is the one that knows the heart. That's the Lord. Spirit-produced opinions can prevent us from participating in spirit-produced opportunities. I want to say that again. Self-produced opinions can prevent us from participating in spirit-produced opportunities. Why? Because we think we will know a better way to do it than the opportunity that the Lord has orchestrated and says, will you join me here? Well, that's a good idea, God, but I think we should do this. And what is revealed here in another one of the accounts is the selfish motives. In the account that we read about in John of this story, it tells us that the disciples didn't say this because they cared about the poor, but because they, one of them, Judas, who goes on to betray Christ, was actually stealing from this money. So they, they can have a guise like, hey, we should be able, we should spend the money more wisely over here, but Actually, the selfish motivation was, I, I want to take from that. I want to keep some of that. I don't want to give it all to God. We must inspect our hearts. And so we have this practical principle to live our lives as everything being for him, through him, and to him. And we see this beautiful example of Mary in Mark chapter 14. And it leads us to this final simple truth. Lavish worship 
is never a waste. If it is to the Lord and for the Lord's work, it is never a waste. Whatever it is that God leads you to give, however it is that God causes you to participate, however little you feel you have to contribute, if you give it to the Lord, to what he is doing, to what he calls you to, it is never a waste. Let's set aside the idea of of money and building something and just go to the idea of participating in the local church. Do you know how many times you and I are tempted to go, I don't know if I should go to my men's growth group this week. I don't know if I really should go and put my kids in cause this week. There's so much else going on. And really, what are they going to get out of it? I didn't do my reading. What can I actually get from it? How can I help somebody else? And we talk ourselves in it. Again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to do everything in our own rationale and our own reason rather than what is God calling me to? What is he inviting me into? And sometimes you have nothing to give that week, but you know he has something for you to receive that week. And sometimes you have maybe nothing that you feel like you're going to be going there and imparting, and yet something that he's been doing in your heart and your life that he leads you to share with your group, he's going to use to bless somebody, to encourage somebody. We have to prevent self-produced opinions from getting in the way from us responding obediently to spirit-produced opportunities. And so what does that require from us? To get on our knees and to pray and say, Lord, help me understand what it is you're calling me to do. And whatever it is, help me to respond obediently, courageously, fearlessly, because I believe that everything is from you, through you, and to you for your glory. Amen. If it belongs to the Lord, it doesn't belong to us. And it is possible for us to keep our hands clenched around something that is actually God's. So the key question for us this morning, as we enter into this new season of opportunities and invitations, what has God given you to give away? What has God given you to give away? This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as you came in, hopefully you uh, were given one of these. If, If you didn't receive some of these uh, elements as you came in. If you just slip your hand up right now, uh, the men will come around the room, our ushers, and, and happy to give you those. But as you familiarize yourself with this, I just want to make one final connection to what we're talking about this morning, to what we're about to do. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here as they get prepared to lead us in a moment of reflection. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that it's God's love that compels us to live obediently to him, to live an all for Jesus life, to live it with this principle in place that everything is from him and through him and to him. It's because of God. It says in John 15, no One has a greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. There's not a more permanent, more visible demonstration of authentic God-produced love than to sacrifice it all, to lay down one's life. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Not only did he pay for all our sins, but then he placed his Holy Spirit inside us. He adopts us into his family. He gives us an inheritance and he calls us to not just live fearfully in this world and praying every day for his kingdom to come because we know he's coming back and we do look forward to that day, but to live expectantly, hope-filled, 
knowing that my relationship with him doesn't start when I get to heaven. It starts the moment I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout the scriptures, there was this idea of drink offerings and they were one of the ways that you could give to the Lord. And if you had a drink offering, it might mean that you didn't have much else. You didn't have an animal to give or grain to give, but you might have something that was a value of, of drink and you would be able to pour that out. And this idea of pouring out that sacrifice, I mean, you turned it all the way upside down. There was not one drip left. It was all to the Lord. It wasn't just a little bit. It was all. And Jesus talks about how with his disciples, he was going to, to give his life and his blood was going to be shed for us. And Paul later on in the New Testament talks about following in that model and giving his life, being poured out for other people. Jesus held nothing back from us. No greater love than this than to lay down your life for a friend. And that's what Jesus did for all of us. And so maybe this morning, you, you're not part of the family of God. You've, you've never actually began that relationship with Christ. I want you to know Christ came, God in the flesh, Jesus, and he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live so that he could die a death in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. He poured out his cup for you. And he says, if you will believe in me, if you will receive that gift of salvation and place your faith in me, I will forgive your sins and I will give you something. I will fill you up in a way that you've never been filled before. Jesus held nothing back when he went to the cross, but he holds nothing back from us today. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, as we begin to prepare our hearts to take the elements, I wanna remind us that not only has he called us to believe for that salvation, to put your faith in no other thing to save you from your sins than the precious work of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but he also calls us to abide. And what that means is to remain, to trust in him. When there doesn't seem to be an explanation, when it doesn't make sense in human terms, he says, trust me, abide in me. When I call you into opportunities and I invite you to join me where I'm at and it doesn't make sense. Abide in me. Trust in me. I will provide what you need if you remain. He says, follow me. I will raise you up and then I will send you out. This morning, as we prepare to remind ourselves what Christ has done for us, let this sign of God's love for us be what compels us to join him and what he is doing here in our church and in our lives. Amen.